Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to the Mr. Beacon podcast. This week we're speaking to the UK managing director uh, of a company called Digipal. Uh, who provide plastic pallets, uh, but they also provide the digital systems that help manage those. So this may sound a little obscure, arcane niche, but it's not. Uh, These kinds of systems are like the tendons that connect the bones of supply chain infrastructure to the muscle of the cloud. Um, The implications are really profound in terms of sustainability, efficiency, um, and we're really tapping into something which I think represents a lot of the potential of IoT and something that Mr. Beacon has been focused on right from the uh, early days of the Beacon Technologies book, which is this digital physical convergence and how when these things come together, they can change everything. So how is it that plastic pallets and the cloud systems and the Bluetooth tags that connect them can change everything? Why is it that it will extend shelf life? Uh, Why is it that uh, it will save a lot of money? Uh, Why is it that this will spearhead uh, the IoT revolution? Well, have a listen to Matan. Um, David uh, is incredibly knowledgeable um, on on this subject, and uh, I found it to be a really educational opportunity. So I hope you enjoy it. The Mr. Beacon podcast is sponsored by Williot Intelligence for Everyday Things, powered by IoT Pixels. So Matan, you, you live in Coventry, is that right? Yeah, in sunny Coventry, UK. Um, originally from from Israel, but moved here about sixteen years ago. Ah, oh, okay. And so, why did you end up in Coventry? Because when most people think of England, Coventry is not the first place that they think of. I, I say yeah. that as someone that actually lived in Coventry as a small child, so I'm uh, uh, familiar with the weather, which is typically uh, raining, uh, and uh, and the environment, which I think has improved since I uh, grew up there. At the time, we, we still had like uh, damage from the war. There was a lot of bombed out buildings, and the cathedral wow. famously got bombed, and mm. so forth. But so why uh, so why Coventry? Um, in the name of love, to be honest. <laughs> I've um, when after after a few years when I lived in the UK, I met my uh, current wife, <laughs> and. Um, she works in Coventry, um, and uh, that's where we met halfway, uh, to closer to her work and close to my work as well. Um, ended up in Coventry, 
nice area, but uh, of Coventry. But uh, yeah, a lot of people ask, you know, and how you... did I move from a, from a sunny Israel to a gloomy Coventry? <laughs> it makes sense. It's right in the middle, so maybe that's handy. And I guess, given DigiPal's business, maybe you're close to manufacturing areas. That uh, I don't know whether it works out for you or not. Yeah, I mean, and generally, the center of the UK is is brilliant for you know for meeting customers. Um, you know, some of our customers or suppliers into supermarkets are either based in the north or based in the south. Some of the supermarkets in London, some of them in the middle. So generally, so logistically, it's, it, it's, it's very convenient uh, to warehousing, but also to live. And how did you, so what, what is your role at DigiPal? I'm a managing director of UK and Ireland. I'm in charge of the commercial side, the sales team, uh, the operation ensuring that um, we hit the growth targets that we have and uh, rolling out any new projects. And, and how did you end up at uh, DigiPal? I think, I mean, you started off, uh, looks like you got a couple of degrees. You got a first-class honours degree uh, in, was mm. it business? Uh, in business, yeah, my BA in business, and then I've got MBA following that. Or um, university. Yeah, I actually started my career in IT, um, as IT manager, um, moved into supply chain, project management, customer service, um, and I really enjoyed the commercial side of the business. Uh-huh. Um, so built my expertise there, um, and hopefully the operation side that I did for many years as well um, helped me. Helps me with that. Very good. Uh, and so, what was the previous company that you worked at uh, before Digipol? Um The previous company was Polymer Logistics. Uh, so it's in the same industry. The industry is very small. Um, and that and I live and that's why I moved to the UK. I moved to work for Polymer Logistics, um, but um, following the sell uh, to Tosca, um, we opened uh, Digipal and created the new company. Okay, so were you you were uh, are you technically a founder then or a co-founder? Yeah, uh, yeah, I can say that. Um, when we started, there was only a handful of customers in the UK. Um, I was. The first employee in the UK as well. It's a global company. I've got a presence in in Central Europe, in the UK, and in America. But um, the main of the business currently is in the UK. Um, now we grew, and we have a bit of a team, small small customer service team and sales team. So it's very exciting. It's it's, it's challenging and exciting. And how long has it taken you to get to where you are at the moment? How old's it's about a couple of years since we started Digipal. Um, and that's it. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it's a small company, but with great ambitions. (laughs) Very good. And, you know, for people that don't know what was, uh, what is Polymer Logistics, uh, now part of Tosca? Yeah, it's it's a good question. So Polymer was a pooling company, um, of basically manufacturing of crates and pallets, um, where they give it to rent to uh, customers in the supermarket supply chain, predominantly. Um, the company, the same as Digipal, we, we own the, our own assets. We rent it out to customers. They put their you know, the carrots and lettuce on it, on the, on the pallet and send it to the supermarkets. And then we collect it and send it back to the customers. Um, the unique thing about, about Digipal is that we, we're taking this asset tracking, as we say, or asset management, which is very important to us because it's, it's, it's our own asset um, and installed a lot of technology on it, uh, whether it's IoT, RFID, even even down to QR codes, 
um, just to make sure that we're not losing our assets. Um, so to most people, as you say, you know, that they, they, they don't, not, don't know the industry, they go and buy the carrots or the eggs in the supermarket, mm-hmm. but there's a whole industry behind it of actually getting it to the supermarket uh, yeah. from, from the farmers down to the supermarket uh, shelf. Interesting. So, uh, w- what's the elevator pitch of uh, of DigiPal? What? Uh, how, how do you explain uh, what your your company does have, in just a minute or two? Yeah, that's no problem. Um, so, the business uh, route to market is is split into two. Um, one of it is the manufacturing and rental of our plastic pallets. Um, that's our main focus: is, is, is pallets, whether it's uh, small pallets uh, or large, twelve hundred by thousand or euro size. We invest a lot of innovation into um, new kind of pallets that can possibly save space, save transport costs. Um, and the competitors are mostly wood uh, pallets. So we, we go from an environmental angle, hygienic angle. And the other side of the business is the asset tracking and, um, and the traceability. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, because we, we know how important it is for us not to lose our assets. And we've got about 25 years of experience now. Of, of making sure that we don't lose our assets, we decided to dedicate half of our business to outsource this kind of service. So anyone that have their own pallets, roll cages, um, loud containers, anything that they want to, to track, we even have someone that track um, uh, pump trucks, you know, in the warehousing. Um, anything that they someone wants to track, they come to us because at the end of the day, whether it's a pallet or a roll cage it doesn't really matter an, an asset is an asset and we want to make sure that it moves fast it's um, reducing capex to the customers make sure they don't lose anything that everything that they use use a lot we call it sweat the assets so so this is the main the main couple of things that we do in the business is pallets and then asset tracking so sounds like you will track other people's assets. So you sell pallets, but you'll if someone buys uh, pallets from someone else, then uh, then you'll put your own sensors on there and, and track them. Correct. Yeah. So in a, in a previous company, the strategy was IoT is an enabler for our own products. You know, so only only offer it on our own products and um, and making sure that we our customers don't lose our our uh, assets. But we very, very fast saw in Digipal that there's many people that own assets that not even, as I said, even, not even plastic pallets. So why would we constrain ourselves just to do, to do it on our own assets? You know, if we can start outsource our expertise um, and make sure that, you know, everyone gain from, from, our, from our knowledge. Um, we partner with different suppliers. You know, Williot is one of them um, and mm-hmm. other IoT suppliers. Um, and we are basically integrators. So, you know, instead of the suppliers have to go and talk to 50 different customers, they go and talk to us and then we talk to these customers. We integrate the the, log- the hardware, we integrate the platform, take the data together, because a lot of the customers will have data coming from, you know, not just from us, it could have data coming from uh, telematics, which is uh, uh, tracking for trucks, uh, it could be from EPO systems, which is uh, what's actually got sold in the supermarket. So all of this data we take and, and we consolidate into one platform as well. So are you what the industry calls a, a pooling, a pooler, a pooler of assets? Yeah, so definitely we're, we're a, pool, a plastic pooling company. That's what our little industry will, will uh, 
will uh, will classify us as, um, but we will take our expertise and and outsource it as well. And so, what is the, if you're a pooler? I thought a pooler owned all of the assets that were being pooled, and you essentially operated it as a service, but. If you're working on rolling cages, uh, which you don't make, then how does that work? Uh, if you so, so we create the enclosure for the IoT device, or we purchase the Bluetooth tags if it's if it's someone like Williot, mm-hmm. um, and then we go to the customer and and build with them how how they're going to install it on the on the roll cage, how they're going to put antennas, what do they need in a platform? We will do all of this because. You need to remember that if someone owns a roll cage, and let's take, a, for example, a, a supermarket, for example, and they have their own roll cage, they are not a pulling company. They they have roll cages. They know they need to move it between A to B, mm-hmm. um, but they, their expertise is not in the pulling aspect of the business. So we would rent them the, either the sensors or we just give them the service. You know, some customers want to buy the sensors. And or, or labels, and we will just give them an annual fee for the platform. Um, we are very, very much open to how we how we how we uh, deal with our customers and what our commercial model is. And we don't we're not striking ourselves to just uh, just one just commercial model. Um, it's it's part of our culture, to be honest. So we are very disruptive. Um, we like to you know go into like the, with the wood market to go in and offer plastic pallets or mm-hmm. to go into the traditional. You know, here's an here's a, a platform, um, and uh, start pay us a license. We like to do that with a different angle to make sure that um, we fit what the service that we that the customers want. Okay, uh, so we'll get into the technology in a bit, but you basically put these IoT sensors could be Bluetooth, could be something else, mm-hmm. uh, and you're operating this, and it could be so. Am I understanding correctly? If I say, oh, I, we, we need to outsource this pooling and we're just going to get everything from DigiPal, you'll provide the pallets, you'll provide the, the tracking service, and the whole thing will be – how do you sell something like that? If I need a, a million pallets, what does that deal look like uh, if I don't have the pallets at the moment or I have wooden pallets and I decide I want to have something that's more sustainable that's plastic that's, that's, pallets what, uh, okay that's that's a, I'll give an example so you know one of our customers in the UK it's a poultry manufacturer they used to use wood pallets uh, they had many hygienic problems with the pallets um, their customers actually um, demanded that they move to plastic um, so they came to us we specified with them how many pallets they need in the fleet uh, we manufactured the pallets. We gave it to them um, on a rental basis. It's almost mm-hmm. like a lease car. You know, here mm-hmm. you go, have a pallet, hold it for three years. Um, you mm-hmm. can renew it after that, or you can bring the pallet back. But on the on the traceability point, what's the unique, you know, because everyone can go and say, here we go, have a pallet. Um, what we have is that we have this capability of actually tracking the pallets with our devices. So... Normally, if if a customer wants a pallet and they want it on a rental, they will be very worried about losses. Uh, very worried, do they have enough pallets? So we offer the option to actually track these pallets and make sure that they don't lose them. Um, but then there's also customers that want to buy a pallet and they might not even buy it from us, uh, mm-hmm. which is fine. But again, it's the same worry. Can, you know, what do we need to do to make sure we don't lose the pallet? What do we need to make sure that you know, site A doesn't hold the pallet and don't send it to site B and then we don't have enough uh, pallets. 
Now, it could be, as I said, roll cages as well. It doesn't have to be anything that, you know, we are not very precious about customers buying it from us. It can be bought from, from third parties. Okay. Uh, and as far as making sure they have enough pallets, whose decision is that? Is that your decision or theirs or some combination? So um, on a pooling basis, it, it's us. You know, we, we get the information from customers or what's the forecast for the year, what's, um, what they think they're going to be their sell, sells into their customers, into the, into the supermarkets. Um, and then we build up a, a forecast for the next, let's say, 12 weeks up to six months. Um, and then we make sure we have enough, enough in our fleet. We know because of technology, we know how long a pallet stays at the customer, how long it stays at the supermarket. So we can calculate how many we have in a fleet and how many we need in the, in the future. If it's a if it's a customer that have it on their site and just move it from A to B and, and it's both of their sites, so they it's like a captive uh, system. Then we will talk to them and we will decide with them, you know, how many pallets they need. But on a pulling basis, it it's us. You know, they 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 just want to make sure there's enough pallets out there and um, that they can send to their customers. Okay, so. One of the problems you solve is essentially capacity planning to keep the, the pool going. You have the information about where all these pallets are, and from that, then you can make sure that they don't run out. And presumably, that keeps the products flowing and means that there's no delays or uh, any other kind of capacity planning issues that might hold the business back and presumably you're making sure that they don't have to put too much money into pallets. They don't have to buy too many. You can kind of get it just right, uh, hopefully. Um, do, do you, I mean, do people ask you for some kind of SLA? Because, you know, presumably there's an interest in spending as little money as possible on a smaller pool as possible. Um, but at the same time, uh, no one wants to be accountable for delays in shipping or produce going bad because there's no pallets to put it on. How how do you how do you work that out with your customers? Yeah, it's 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 yeah, it's a good point because as I said, one of our main KPI internally is is this cycle time is to make sure that the pallet is moving fast and and doesn't stay in 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 one place. And this is the same exactly that reason because we don't want to run out of pallets. Um, but at the same time, we can't invest more than what we need because, as as you said, the customers want a lower price, right? Especially in the in the supermarket industry. Um, I don't know how it is in America, but in the UK, it's very, very, very competitive. The supermarket mm -hmm. industry, um, which means everyone wants to the lowest cost for the best best service, um, and and you know to do that, it's very you need robust forecast. You need as much information as you can, and this traceability piece of technology um, gives us that extra information that we never had before. That, that visibility, we call it supply chain visibility, make sure that we, we can see all this dark area as well. You know, someone might abuse our palette and not, and not send it back or use it for, for anything that they might want to use it, which is not supposed to. Um, mm -hmm. that's, that's the main the main challenges for us is this cycle time to make sure that the assets move fast. And how do you know if someone's using the pallet for something they shouldn't be using it for? Well, so traditionally it was about just someone goes there and do a stock count, um, mm -hmm. balance it compared to what we have in the system and say, you know, you're supposed to have 500 pallets, you have 
sticks on the pallets, you know, why is that? Um, but in the modern time, when we've got uh, IoT, um, we just see it, right? We, we get information from the pallet. So I can put maybe 10% of my pallets with Bluetooth or, you know, Wi-Fi devices. And, and I know where the pallets are, whether, you know, whether someone is holding it too long or not. Um, that's, that's the beauty of the technology nowadays. And you talked about just a percentage of the pallets being connected. How does that work? Do you, do you have, do you, do you sometimes just like sample and sometimes you, uh, track everything and how do you decide what to do? What are the, it, it, depends, uh, it depends on the need, isn't it? So, um, Normally, we'd say it depends. It depends on the need on the, on the budget of the customer um, and what you know if it's our palette or if it's not our palette. So, if the need is, tell me what my losses are. You don't need to track hundred percent of your assets to know that. You know, you can do ten percent, twenty percent, and use statistical information. You know, big data, all of these good mm -hmm. things that you know that we have in our in our arsenal to make mm -hmm. sure that you understand how many what's your what's your losses and where they are. Because normally, if you have, if you have a, a leakage, as we say, you know, imagine it's a bucket that got a leakage mm -hmm. of, of water. If there is one pallet that leaks from the, there's probably another five next to it, right? Right. Uh, so you don't need to, to tag all the five pallets because it will give you the same amount of information. Same, you get mm -hmm. get to the same result. Um, however, there's some customers that come to us and say, "Hey, we know we want to know on the morning six in the morning six o'clock how many how many pallets or roll cages I have in my warehouse." Now that means I need to tag 100% of the assets. I can't, mm -hmm. I can't use statistical information for that. Um, and for that perspective, we need to put device or a label on on every asset. Um, and then it, it connects to the budget. You know, if someone's got enough budget, everything will be probably like a GPS tracker, which is the top of the range. You know, mm -hmm. most information. You know, with a battery. If someone have a low budget, because the assets doesn't cost a lot. Mm -hmm. um, we will go to RFID or Bluetooth labels or, you know, Williard mm -hmm. tags or et cetera. So, and, and this is what we do. We, we go use our expertise with our knowledge from, from an asset management point of view and from a technology, technological point of view and find the, the right solution for the customers. So you talked about if someone wants to know absolutely how many pallets there are, then you want to track them all. Um, are there any other benefits to having that kind of continuous visibility of, uh, of, of the pallets? Absolutely. So I guess there's two dimensions. One is like what proportion of the pallets are being tracked? Uh, and then the other dimension is, are the pallets being tracked continuously or not? Because presumably you could track the pallets with a QR code, uh, but that requires someone to go out and take a snapshot. It's like a batch processing. It's like mm -hmm. punch cards and paper tape in terms of processing. It's a, there's an operator involved. And then if you have um, presumably a GPS device or a Williot tag, then you can potentially continuously monitor that wherever you have the infrastructure uh, or, 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 or the coverage to, to do that tracking. So what are the problems that you can solve? What, are there any other problems that you can solve when you have 100% and continuous visibility? Yeah, so this is where it gets interesting because 
most of our customers, and we can get very into a philosophical discussion about adaptation of technology in the supermarket mm-hmm. supply chain. I've done a dissertation on it, by the way. Oh, <laughs> okay, excellent. Um, All right, stand by. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, and normally you tend to start the commercial discussions or you open the door with losses or inventory, as I, as I mentioned before, because these are the pains that the logistics team or the operations team feel on the day-to-day because it's real money that they spend capex on it's real money that that they that they need to go out and do some stock counts and they never know what how much stock they have and they're getting phone calls at seven o'clock in the evening when they're at dinner with a family or 10 o'clock at night if they're in spain um you know and kind of trying to understand um you know what's what's going on the next stage that's you know that's my belief after that is you know, temperature control, uh, on-shelf availability. You know, if, if every uh, pallet, for example, is, is tagged and the case on top of it, so every uh, um, box of carrots, for example, or a, or a six packs of, of water, if everything is tagged, then you can start talking about how much I have on the shelf, how much stock I have, what's my stock at the store. You know, mm-hmm. supermarkets, for example, they spend millions on the most sophisticated supply chain systems, ERP systems, um, making sure that they've got on time in full deliveries to the stores. But at the end of the day, you have um, a person normally in the UK with a cardboard, cut cardboard uh, part goes and say, okay, I need five boxes of crisps and five bottles of of water bring from the back to the front. Now that's Mm -hmm. cost of someone doing it. And mm-hmm. moving it from the back to the front uh, is, is, is immense. It's, it's, it's big, isn't it? It's a large cost. It's probably the biggest cost that they have in the supermarket is the labor. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, this, this technology that can actually form, moving from at the beginning to losses and inventory and actually give you, enable you all this extra visibility in the supply chain, suddenly can open up a lot of um, opportunities for for on-shelf availability, for, for supplying to the store, for visibility. It's, it's, I keep going back to that point, but it, it's that. Yeah, but you're going from this supply chain that was in the dark to suddenly you have a maybe a flashlight and then you have a, a, you know, a complete lighting system mm-hmm. of seeing where everything is. And you're talking about on-shelf availability. What does, the, what does on-shelf availability mean? I mean, I think I understand it, but can you make it a bit more explicit? Yeah, no problem. So it's, the biggest, the biggest KPI for supermarkets is, is, as I said, on, on shelf availability. So it's making sure that either the toothbrushes or the toothpaste or the deodorants that's on the shelf actually don't run out. The worst nightmare for a supermarket is that you as a shopper go to the shop, you want that specific item and it's not there on the shelf. It's empty because someone didn't bring it from the back of the store. It wasn't delivered to the store. It wasn't order from the supplier. You know, I'm going from from the end to the to the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, normally, how it works when you shop at the shop at the at the till, um, if you get down to a certain uh, stock at the store, an order placed automatically to the depot, the local distribution center, and then another order is placed in the to the supplier. However, there's a lot of problems. You know, down to human interaction. Um, you know, the, the stock is not on the shelf. It wasn't delivered to the right store and or it wasn't ordered uh, from the suppliers. So this extra visibility 
can actually tell you more accurately how much stock you have on the shelf or how much mm -hmm. you have at the back of the store. And then with that, you can start begin to get all this data and know where to place an order. Um, speaking to one of the biggest brands, you know, in just for just for my studies, and he said it was after the, the beginning of Corona. It was after um, the beginning of uh, March 2020. And in the UK, we had big, massive panic buy of everything. You know, you would go to the shop in March and there would be nothing. There would be no frozen food. There would be no uh, toilet paper. There would be no eggs. There would be no meat. Chefs would be completely empty. Now, okay, this is once in a lifetime, you know, shock to the system. But these things can happen, whether it's peak time or whether it's anything that's happening, you know, in the world. And in the last five years, that happened quite a lot of things in the world, to be honest. Anything like yeah. that can can affect the supply chain. And this extra visibility can can make your supply chain more resilient. It can make sure that you've got better focus. Make sure that you that you can react better to any anything that's happening down down on the ground. Um, and you don't have this disconnect between the store and the suppliers. I mean, it makes sense that if you have much better visibility of where these pallets are, then you can spot if things are not as they should be in order to uh, avoid that out of stock on the shelf, which is bad because the customer is frustrated. Maybe they go to another store. Mm -hmm. you've, you've got a challenge on loyalty. Uh, you're losing sales and presumably you might even be pay paying for the inventory and it's sitting somewhere and so you, you've you've got uh, um, uh, capital tied up in something that's not productive. So that totally makes sense. Um, what are the, but I, I suspect there's more to it than that. It's not just, okay, I can see everything and therefore I'm no longer going to have any out of stocks. What are the, if you kind of double click on that and drill down, what are the alerts that you can throw? Presumably you have a dashboard that, uh, that people can see. Um, how do you flag the underlying issues that prevent those uh, out of stocks? Like, you know, for instance, um, products in the back of the store versus the front of the store. Does the, the pallet ever go to the front of the store? How do you know that, uh, that something's not in the front of the store? Uh, no, so, 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 so some yeah, pallets go to the front be. of the store. Some pallets will stay at the back. Um, but this is not only for the pallets, right? So the traceability can be down to the case side. And when I say case, it could be a box ah. of chocolate, it could be a box of, you know, of water or anything like that. You can put mm -hmm. a, a tag, with, uh, a Williot tag or RFID tag um, on, on these cases and, you know, forget about the pallets. Um, it's, it's, it's that, that, that can, you can connect the cases down to the supermarkets. Um, okay, so your your um, cloud software can go beyond the pallet down to the case. Correct. As, yeah, as well. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, the powerful um, use cases is when the pallet is actually talked to the case. So you might have a Bluetooth label on the on the case, and the pallet might have like a Bluetooth reader, and they can actually talk mm -hmm. to each other. And then you might know if someone removed the case where it's not supposed to. That's theft. You know, if you can, you can prevent oh. theft like that. Um, okay. But generally, it's it's quite expensive to do that. But you know, it depends what you're moving. Um, so if you're moving um, razor blades, for example, uh, they're quite expensive and there's quite a high theft on them because the packaging are quite small, so it's easy to, to steal. Or there was another case, um, not in the supermarket industry actually, that's in a post and parcel, where a post and parcel company was moving um, totes of 
uh, totes or crates of um, of mobile phones. So you know the the crate itself costs maybe ten pound, but inside mm-hmm. of it or or twelve twelve dollars or how much it is nowadays I don't know. But inside of the crate it's you know fifty thousand dollars of iPhones. You know and mm-hmm. you want to know if someone removed that tote from from the pallet, right? Um, mm-hmm. Because you know because it's it's really expensive. Um, and uh, what is a tote? A tote is a, is a crate. So it's a British. Um, it's it's a crate of plastic crates that you put stuff inside. It's got a lid on top of it, um, and yeah, we use it. Okay, yeah, I've heard that term used for car parts as as well. Okay. So I mean, what what what's your um, what's your perspective on the adoption of reusable transport items? I guess that's the generalized term mm. for all of these things, whether it's a pallet or a crate or a tote or one of those big um, containers for liquids. They're all RTIs, but the point is they're reusable. How uh, I've experienced conversations with companies where they're like, no, we're not going to bother with uh, reusability. We're going to have cardboard boxes instead. Where are we now in terms of the retailers and brands moving from disposable containers to uh, to reusable containers? Um, yeah. So, f- so first of all, I would add it's not just using cardboard. It's it's challenge that, that I've personally faced before. Is people say no, but we're making money from the cardboard. We we're selling the cardboard to recycling. Now, mm. I think it's very old-fashioned and not. This is not how people should look it into into that um, perspective anymore, because moving recycled cardboard is also costs carbon. Uh, it costs money. Um, the fact that you're making money from selling the cardboard it doesn't mean that, that that's the right thing to do for the planet and for for from the cost point of view. Um, yeah. So I'm it's afraid- fundamentally inefficient, isn't it? Because yeah. you're that. I mean, this is the circular economy theory. It's like keep the assets in the same form uh, for as long as you can, for as many cycles as you can. Don't spend the money on uh, melting the glass to make new bottles. Make a high-quality bottle that can stay in its same form. That's ultimately going to be more efficient. So, Correct, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, so I think there's more and more adaptation of RTI. Um, I think one of the challenges that RTI had before is, is this thing with the losses. Um, you know, I would say customers would be worried to invest it because, you know, pallets, roll cages, especially the big co- containers for liquid, as you mentioned, they're expensive items. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if someone mm-hmm. wants, you know, a, a pallet, it could be anything between 40 to 60 pound, which is, mm-hmm. you know, it's quite it's quite expensive investment if someone needs five, 10, you know, 20,000 pallets. Um, when you compare that to, you know, you talked about cardboard, I'm, I'm going to talk about wood, because in my opinion, mm-hmm. wood is not circular as much as, as plastic is, mm-hmm. um, even though a, a wood company or wood pooling company will say, well, hang on, you know, our pallet is going through the system the same as yours. So, well, mine mm-hmm. can last 10 years. If it breaks, I make a new one from it because I can regrind it and recycle it. Uh, mm-hmm. The wood pallet will last about four or five cycles until they make you know, fences out of it maybe or something something else. Mm-hmm. Um, so a wood pallet will typically will be 20% of the cost to buy compared to a, a plastic pallet. So same as the cardboard that you mentioned compared to a plastic crate, you know, my, someone might say, um, 
in the wood is more is, is cheaper for me on the short term I'll, I'll going to use that so there's a lot of education that we we do with our customers uh, whether it's through pr whether it's through marketing um to to make sure that they understand that it's short-sighted you know you need to look at the long term and a plastic pallets will will be maybe a bit more expensive to purchase but you know the overall running cost of it is lower because you don't replace mm-hmm. so many so Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How did it get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, how get 20, 20, how get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamline my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. So in a sense, this connectivity that you offer is really key to people being able to have the confidence to move forward and invest in a better quality RTI, to go from wood that falls to pieces to plastic that can last for a decade. Yes, it's going to be more expensive, but ultimately it'll be a lot cheaper if you can do the tracking and tracing and make sure that you spot the leaks in the, in the system Um, so that's interesting. So plastic pallets have been around, but the ability to connect them at low cost to the cloud is, you know, relatively new. Um, um, and so hopefully this is, uh, uh, a step forward in terms of, uh, environmental savings. Is that fair to say? It's, uh, it's, it's absolutely, yeah, it's, it's completely right. Um, it's, it, it, we managed to go down with a price you know if, if we issue a pallet out to a, to a customer down to where the woods pallet will be just because we are more efficient um and we're more efficient because of the technology because of the visibility that we have in the in the supply chain um this is obviously unrelated to the discussion about um about the on-shelf availability and all the extra in, extra information we get this is just the the efficiencies of pulling or rental or, or anything that we do with our pallets um, that allow us to compete better because of the visibility. Um, because as you said, it's, if it's too expensive and people might not want, not want to invest if they don't have the security to make sure that they don't, they don't lose the assets. Very good. So how mature is this market? Where are we in terms of adoption of uh, continuous connectivity Uh, for these RTIs? Um, is it uh, our, um, you know, if you had to, I know you're not an industry analyst, uh, although you live in the industry, so you probably have 
as at least as good a view as yeah. most industry analysts. Uh, what what percentage would you guess of plat pallets today are a plastic and b connected uh, plastic? Uh, roughly? So, um, I would say the connected plastic pallets is very low percentage, and then we're talking about you know handful of percentage of of pallets. I would say um, single digits. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then plastic compared to the wood pallets, or you know, um, I would say maybe ten, fifteen percent of the of the usage into supermarkets. Okay, um, is is very small. So this so is new. This it is new. It is new. Yeah. Um, Digipal in the UK and Ireland is the only company that does large pallets into supermarkets. Um, and as I said, mm-hmm. we are two years old. You know, so even though our expertise is twenty five years old. You know, the company is quite new, so we are the only one that do it into the supermarkets, 1,200 by 1,000, because we're only the one, only one that can run it in a cheap and um, in a cheap way compared to the wood pallet. Now, you need to remember that, especially with pallets, we're trying to disturb wood pallet industry, which has been mm-hmm. in, in, in the go-to pallet for 60, 70 years. You know, a lot of it is the, is the legacy of World War II, with a lot of pallet leftovers, um, a lot of factories that were converted to to uh, manufacturing that needed pallets. You know, there's uh, this is not a commercial for Coca-Cola, but if you if you see the Coca-Cola factories across across Europe, it's basically where the Americans had bases and they converted to to Coca-Cola factories. Um, you know, the, and and the pallets you know needed after the World War Two, they were needed to be able to move all the to do all the logistics. Following the, the following the the war, now if you go to any warehouse nowadays, it's all set up acro- around wood pallets, which makes it harder sometimes for for a different innovative pallet to come into the into the into the mix. Um, can give you example that you know one very highly automated uh, customer, you know our pallets at the beginning didn't work on the line because they had four hundred sensors just looking at the pallet, making sure the pallets. Are not broken. There's no chips out of them now because they're using wood pallets, and there's quite a lot of damages. There's quite a lot of problems with them. So these 400 sensors. Yeah. So our pallet, because it was a bit different, as broken as something as something different, and kind of kicked it out. So it's almost like the the problem with that you have with the wood pallet, with the legacy, you know, culture of using these wood pallets, if you want to call it like that. Um, sometimes. So sometimes it stops us from from able to actually introduce our uh, innovation. So uh, amazing, and 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 because that technology infrastructure was built into the facility, which yeah. which I guess is inherently limited, isn't it? It means that you're uh, um, you're you're kind of you've got a lot of fixed uh, cost and a lack of, uh, of of flexibility. But if the if the intelligence is in the palette, then you can start to extend the visibility a lot further than just in the, uh, um, you know, receiving bay of the uh, of the pooling um, system. Can you um, tell us a bit more about the technology then? Um, uh, let's actually start from the user's perspective on, on the cloud side. Who is it that is using your cloud service? You have presumably you have dashboards, screens, consoles that are accessible on the web. Who is it that's looking at those things? So, 
when we talked about the adaptation and you know what what people aim to change, and it's it's mostly the losses or or the inventory. Because of that, the main users are um, customers who who own assets, either use our own or or use their own assets. But they own assets, and their their job is to make sure that they don't that they that they cycle the assets or they return and and uh, and pull themselves basically their own assets. So it's logistics people, it's um, asset management managers, operations, uh, etc. Um, and this is going back to the adoption adaptation. This is why it's it's hard to to penetrate into the visibility into the stores or visibility into the back of the store because the ROI or return on investment that the customers are looking for is very, very limited to what their scope is, which is, you know, just the assets. And they don't think about yeah, that. They're not caring so much about uh, freshness of the produce Correct. or anything like that, which Correct. someone else, that's a different department. Someone else's P&L, uh, maybe. Exactly, yeah, so that's exactly a, that. That's, yeah. that's a challenge. Yeah, it's, it's exactly that. How do you how do you bridge that gap? Uh, if the person that's paying for it is only because I'm assuming that kind of the savings from lower leakage, I, I guess it enables you to switch to plastic, which is good. You probably care about that, but uh, how do you overcome that siloed uh, ROI issue? So it's it's mostly a commercial decision, you know, um, and looking into the long in the long term, do we go with a very low margin? just to open the door and making sure that we get our pallets or our IoT in there. And then we start, hey, by the way, you can also do that. You can also do that. Let's talk about that. And then, you know, we, uh, okay. we get license from the platform, license from the use. On, and, and this is our plan. This is our, our strategy, um, how to do it. Um, <clears throat> and yeah, because as you said, even the person we're talking to, or the person which is the decision maker, he's got the P&L. All, all he or she cares about is, I don't want to lose our assets. I need to reduce my capex. <laughs> that's that, that's it. Um, right. Now, some of the solutions are they can give more information than that, and because of that, they are more expensive. So, from a financial point of view, it's hard to sell these, these solutions because if you just look at losses, that's not enough to for the customer to actually uh, adopt the technology. But if you look at everything. You're probably suddenly mm. talking about the cost of the technology is, is again, again, handful of uh, single digits of, of the savings. You know, if you look at, you know, the on-shop yes. availability, the freshness, as you said, temperature control, you know, everything else that comes with it. But yeah, that's, it, it is yeah. a challenge. I mean, IoT is quite, IoT is not, is not new really, but I think it's commoditized enough nowadays to get into this low cost operating places. Um, and, and introduce it there. So we hope it's going to be it's going to be big in the next few years. So I guess you're in a fairly very interesting position because you can potentially subsidize the cost of the crates or the pooling service, uh, and and then you know you sell the the, the razor blade handle, uh, and then hopefully someone else. That, that's really just the start of the sales cycle. Then you can. So who are you selling? selling um, two days of extra shelf life or one day of extra shelf life. Probably one day of extra shelf life on produce is worth a, a huge amount, I'm thinking, because it means you're wasting a lot less produce, um, uh, so less write-off of uh, inventory. It's probably more attractive. It probably tastes better. It probably lasts longer in people's homes, which means you 
might even start acquiring more customers. If people know that grocery store X has fresher pro- produce than the one down the road, personally, I'd switch. It's like, uh, so how do you, who, who are you selling to with that value proposition? Um, so that's, that's, that question is, is related also to, to, the, to the solution and about what's extra value that the solution gives. Um, the benefit is with the supermarket and with the supplier, right? Because the supplier sells more to the supermarket, the supermarket sells more to the customers, to the end customers. And really the benefit, especially when you talk about the example you, you gave, <clears throat> sorry, um, is about the planet, right? You know, that extra freshness is mean less waste, less food waste, yeah. um, which is a big, big deal, we- you know? It's a huge issue. And I mean, the statistics I keep on hearing are anywhere between 30 to 40 percent of uh, the food uh, is, 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 is wasted before we, it even gets on our yeah. plate, uh, you know, uh, irrespective of whether Johnny finishes the, uh, exactly. his, his dinner. Um, and that's astronomic. I mean, food, we make a lot of food. The whole production of food is inter- inherently carbon hungry. Uh, so this is an amazing opportunity if we can, uh, if we can. Exactly, that. exactly. And I would say it's from a sustainable point of view, definitely that's, it's a problem. You know, every, every carrot or every lettuce or every spinach that you create, you know, it's got a carbon footprint to it, but also it's, it's fun. It's almost like unethical, isn't it? Because there's people hungry and you know, we're wasting food. So, you know, it, it can, it, it's, we should, we should, we should do something about it. Um, but you know, back to your question, who is we actually selling to? Nowadays, the suppliers will know what they have, you know, the stock of the lettuce or the stock of the pallets or the crates of they of they have in in the supply chain. When they sell it to a to a customer to a supermarket, they know what they deliver to the depot. They have no visibility what happens un, un, until it gets sold in the till. As I said, there's mm-hmm. at least in the UK, there's an EPO system. And they know how many carrots they sold at the till, but between the depots and the and the, and the store, there is no visibility for the supplier. From a supermarket point of view, it's the other way around. They have no visibility what's happening at the supplier, but supposedly they know what's got at the depot and the stores. Now, what mm-hmm. the way we approach it, and I really like to do it in, in presentations to, to either suppliers or supermarkets when I talk to because the pallets or the crates go through the supplier down to the depot down to the store this is not on, this is no longer just a logistical item this is not just a carrier of carrots or a carrier of lettuce it's a data mm-hmm. now it's a data it's a smart pallet or a smart crate and it can give mm-hmm. you that visibility to both the supplier and the supermarket what's happening in both sides now culturally um it's a difficult thing because a lot of suppliers don't want the supermarkets to know what they have and supermarkets don't want what the suppliers but you know if we manage to break down this barrier of trust or you know of, of working together to the same to, for the same goal everyone gain right it's a cliche win 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 but it is what it, 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 it it's exactly that um so i believe that the suppliers and the supermarkets will gain from it and this is these are people that we should we should sell to but mm-hmm. really the end goal is the, is the end customer, right? It's the people that shop at the, the, the supermarket that will gain from it. So I get the win-win. Um, you know, suppliers, if I'm a farmer uh, or I'm representing a pool of farmers, it, it makes sense that I want that 
produce to be in the best shape and minimize quality issues and uh, and so forth. Um, are, are you saying that potentially the funding of the service can be both from the supermarket and from the the growers or the the, uh, the the brands that are producing the products? Uh, in a or, in, or, or is that a, a step too far? Well, in a sense, it it should be, um, but you know the way that it works already. It's really the, the you know, again that it's the end customer that pay for it, right? So when you buy your tomatoes or tomatoes, um, or you buy the the cucumber, um, you pay for everything that was in the cost in the supply chain before that. Um, so you know if you charge okay. if, if I charge the suppliers, they will just charge the supermarket and they will charge the end customer, right? So okay. So I think it's semantic. I think at the, at the end of the day that it's the end customers that pay for it, but normally at least in the UK the supplier will pay for the extra service and then charge the supermarket. Okay, so you're not selling, so you're selling the, so who pays for the pooling? The supermarket pays for the pooling and the producer pays for the value-added services? No, the supplier, pay, the supplier pay for the pooling. The supermarkets don't tend to pay anything. <laughs> okay. They're big and mighty. <laughs> but, uh, right. So but, when, um, you know, you're running a pooling service and let's say you're selling to, I don't know, Sainsbury's. So what you're saying is Sainsbury's doesn't pay anything. Uh, does that mean you, um, but, but Sainsbury's have to be part of this, right? How do you sell something like this? Yeah. Right? So, uh, so we sell to a supplier, so it will go to, um, lettuce or again, a produce or meat customer. They will pay certain amounts for, let's say $2 for the pallet. Um, then they, they will send that pallet to the supermarkets. They will use the pallet and then make it available for us to collect. Now we don't charge the supermarkets. They've got the, the, they, you know, their role to make sure that they don't misuse our pallets, to make sure that they stack them, you know, in, in a safe way, make sure they load their vehic our vehicles when we come and collect. But the payment, you know, for the, the let's say the $2 for the for the pallet, the supplier will charge it in the price of meat or in the price of, of lettuce, right? So this is part of the packaging cost. Um, and because of that also, the way I see it, also the technology, the, the traceability will be part of the packaging cost. Unless you start yeah. talking about the real benefit that the supermarkets will start gaining, you know, the on-shelf availability, the, you know, food waste, all that then stuff. Then they might pay. Then the supermarkets not only need to pay, they, they also need to lead it, right? Because one, one supermarket can have hundreds of suppliers, you know, it's easier to just sell to the supermarkets and then they need to go and talk to the suppliers to do it if the benefit is with the supermarket. But, you know, what's the persona that you're marketing to? I, I get the, there's someone who's got operations director for pallet pooling in the supplier. That seems to be, but who else are you trying to get in front of to? Anyone uh, that to, would to, listen. To deliver these high level messages. <laughs> right. Anyone? Yeah. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, I'm happy to listen, but I'm not sure that I'm going to be placing any orders for value-added yeah. services. But. No, I'm kidding. Um, it, it, traditionally, we go to the, to the logistics of the operation people because this, these are the people that see the benefits. Um, you know, as I said before about the losses, about the, and, and they, hold yeah, the, yeah. They, they hold the key for it. Um, you know, if you go to a buyer, for example, or someone that buys bananas and, tom and, you know, and tomatoes and cucumbers, they will send you to logistics people <laughs> to, to talk to them. Um, 
even though okay even though some of the benefit is 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 it sits with the with the, you know with his buyers with the commercial with the finance it's the gatekeepers of normally the logistics and operation people yeah if, i guess if the platform's not there then the buyer really can't do anything about it so they're gonna say oh this sounds great uh, uh, uh but um um but uh but isn't the buyer someone that's working at the supermarket yeah um Maybe different PNL, different PNL, <laughs> different scope. You know, as I said as before okay. about the cardboard. Yeah, um, it, yeah it's it hard because like, the, uh, yeah. the, 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 the supermarkets are such a big, such big corporate companies, aren't they? So, so it's really hard to penetrate to the right person. Um, but yeah, that's, that's that's a challenge, and we believe it's it's, it's for the logistics and the operation people. Okay, that, that, that makes sense. So um, let's get back to the technology. Uh, so um, what? So you have a. If, if what is the user interface for for this? Is it uh, are you delivering messaging systems to the warehouse, or what does it look like from the customer's end? Um, so the customer will log into our platform and we'll see where the assets are. They will see where the assets have been before. So what's the history? They'll see temperature, you know, how, what's, what's the temperature of the, where, where the assets uh, are placed. Some customers care about it, some customers don't care about it. Um, they will see all kind of uh, reports, um, anal- analysis on, you know, how long a specific site of theirs hold the pallet for, how long, mm-hmm. you know, until until it comes back, you know, what's the service levels is, you know, they order full loads of 700 pallets, do they actually get 700 pallets? Um, mm-hmm. And all this information on 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 the day to day that they the, the will receive. Now, from a technology point of view, um, the the benefit of, of us in Digipal is that we are not we're not a technology manufacturer, so we are not married to a specific solution. You know, we go to a customer and say, okay, what is the problem? What we're trying to fix, and then we tailor the right solution. Uh, it could be as you know we mentioned before, QR codes with a you know, mm-hmm. very big limitation of someone needs to take a picture of every QR code, um, mm-hmm. up to you know to Williard tags with antennas and bridges, to um, mm-hmm. to, to cellular trackers. You know, with no inter- with no infrastructure. Um, it depends on the solution of what the customer wants. But at the end of the day, we are supplying a platform that you know whether you use def- different technology. You get the same results. You you get information on where the where the assets are, where the leakages are, where the blockages are, um, and you know, and temperature control. Um, these these are the main. We, we get to, we get to that from okay. a different different way. So our, our paths crossed because you were working with Williot. So um, w- and I think uh, people that are following this podcast can can look and find out about uh, Williot if they want to, but. What about other technologies? Are you working with RFID? Does RFID have a big presence on um, on pallets? I think I think so. Yeah, uh, we do have a large implementation currently. Actually, I'm going to to uh, fly next week uh, for a big implementation on RFID mm. on our pallets as well. So the the challenge with RFID has always been the cost of infrastructure. Right, it's the fixed cost mm. at the beginning. The running costs are really low. But you know, mm-hmm. if you go to, especially in the supermarket industry, um, you go to a supermarket, they can have 60, 70, probably double than that in America in a big depot 
um, of, of dock levelers, you know, where the, where the lorries are cut or the trucks coming and, and parking the, uh, the back of the truck and getting loaded and unloaded. Now, if you want to track every asset that comes in and out from these dock levelers or uh, bays, you need 150 gates, right? For every one, for every gate, for, for every dock. And even then, you will only know on that specific gate what came in and out. You will not know where your pallets are in the inside your warehouse. You won't know, are they mm. stuck at the back of the warehouse or in the racking? You won't know any of this mm-hmm. information. Um, right. You know, in a typical... Uh, RFID gate can be anything from $10,000 to $20,000. So, you know, multiply right. that by 150, 70 to 150 gates, just one depot, you know, so, so your, your fixed, your fixed assets and your capex at the beginning is really big, but where you go into a warehouse that might have three or four gates, it's perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. they only want to know, what came out and where it went and when it came back. They don't care about the visibility at their, at their customers or the other depots, just in that specific depot, what came in and, in and out. It's really good because RFID gives you very, very reliable information of what goes through the gates. So if you can, you know, if, if you got the financial for that, that's great. Um, now, if someone wants to know where assets are inside the warehouse, then we've got the Bluetooth labels like, like the Williot um, tags you know, which the infrastructure mm-hmm. is a lot cheaper, the usage is a lot cheaper, and it's more, you know, more, you are able to roll it out around, around the warehouse um, easily. Now, Bluetooth antennas or bridges, just like a Bluetooth phone with the headphones that I have now, you know, you almost don't mm-hmm. know if I'm standing, you know, five meters from here to the left or five meters to the right. You, almost, you need another mm-hmm. antenna five meters to the left to know I'm, I'm closer to you. RFID will know that. Okay. RFID will know I'm here. Um, but the Bluetooth will, you, you need a bit more antennas and, and, and infrastructure for the Bluetooth, but it's really cheap. You know, it's yeah, so with Bluetooth fashion. bridges, you can, they're like a point of interest. So if you decide you want to know whether an asset is in a given place, then you start dotting these low cost bridges yeah. around, and that's how you do the reading. Correct. That's very good. So what was your dissertation on? <laughs> it was about adaptation of IoT in the supermarket supply chain, in the, in specifically in the UK. Um, and it was exactly what we talked about is why, you know, why um, we managed to have so much success on tracking our own pallets um, and so much extra benefits, but the supermarkets don't use it. I mean, nowadays, if I think in the UK, there's only one case of a trial in IoT in a, in a supermarket supply chain where the supermarket is the customer. That's, you know, IoT has been around for, for, for a few years now. Um, so, you know, why, why is that? And it goes back to these gates, you know, this, this RI and the, the gatekeeper of the logistics person that only looks around you know, where they are uh, and don't see the big picture. Um, so that, that was mostly the dissertation. And, and then on top of that, it was about some calculation about financial calculation about proving that it is actually viable from a financial point of view. Um, but like any other dissertation, Sounds fascinating. yeah, like, like any other dissertation or journal, it ends up with more research needs to be done on this because. <laughs> So if I wanted to read it, is there any way I can get it other than just sending you an email and asking for a copy? Is you, it, can yeah, I you can download send me, it from someone? No, you can send me an email. It's not published because 
um, some of the interviewees, um, it was confidential interviews. So all the oh. names, all the names are anonymous. There's only initials. Okay. I'm, not, I'm not even mentioning the companies there. Um, so I can send it. I can send it out, but yeah, <laughs> so, you can't publish it. I'm modest. Okay, <laughs> I might be able to publish. I never tried. <laughs> All right. Well, I think maybe you should have a look at that. I think you'd be doing everyone a service, but uh, but I'm sure you're pretty busy anyway. So uh, let's wrap up now. Uh, it's been a great discussion, but uh, we can't end without our uh, Mr. Beacon tradition, which is to ask you about three favorite songs or three songs that oh, no. mean something to you. What are the, uh, we've been talking a lot. So you, can you remember what the three songs were? Oh, that you I was hoping we're going to finish with that. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> what songs? So, I can't because you you mentioned you mentioned that question in in advance and it's a really interesting question because you never sit and think about it, um, so I had to yeah. think about it quite a bit and and you know what is meaningful in my life is it the family is number one is it the work is it a certain event in my life that happened um, so it was quite a an interesting outside of this this interview it was quite interesting to sit and think about it. Um, mm. You know, a bit, a bit, you know, tradition—not traditional, but a bit out of the, out of, uh, out of, out there. Um, I thought that about specific Nirvana songs. You know, smells like Teen Spirit. Now, uh-huh. it's not so much the lyrics um, that that um, that you know meaningful to me, but mostly the connotation. You know, because like food, like music, there's a lot of connotation, and you, know, you kind of remember where you heard it first time or. You know, yes. and, and things like that. Um, it reminds me that's going to be, I guess it's, this is a podcast for geeks, so it's fine. But it reminds me when I used to sit when um, a really young boy, when I was eight years old, uh, with my five-year-old sister, and we used to play Dungeons and Dragons with my older brother. Um, and we, he used to put the sound in the background. It was before Kurt Cobain killed himself. That was a lot longer mm-hmm. time ago. Um and this would used to have Nirvana in the, in the background. Um, and every time I hear Nirvana since then, it reminds me this time of just me, my brother, and my sister sitting and pitting, playing Dungeons and Dragons together. Um, and it really warms my heart, actually, to, to, to hear about that. That's awesome. So are you counting that as three, or have you got another two <laughs> for us? <laughs> yeah, three songs of Nirvana, that's it. <laughs> no. Um, so yes, I would say this is one. Um, another one was that I thought about and debated myself is Nothing Else Matters by Metallica. Uh, and you can see that I'm a rock person <laughs> by the, by the yeah. two, by the two uh, choices. Um, because, you know, if the first song was about a very happy and very, you know, comforting area, Nothing Else Matters reminds me when I moved to the UK, you know, it, it, was, a bit, it was a hard relocation a bit at the beginning. Um, you know, it's moving from a country that's, is very sunny. It's very open, very mm. warm, both both mm. between people and and move to you know to to to, to a different country. Um, and it was daunting. You know, I thought I know English, but I landed in in the black country, which you know if you lived in mm. the UK in the UK, you know it's a different dialect officially. Um, so I thought I know English. For but people then, that don't live in the UK, what is the black country? The, okay, sorry. So the black country is. If anyone watched Peaky Blinders on the BBC, this is the area that has been filmed. It's um, it's around the west side of Birmingham. Uh, it's a very industrial, cultural um, place. Back in World yeah. War One, World War Two, used to make anchors, used to make uh, coal mines. 
it was very you know yeah. working class um back then and um, i don't actually know why they call it black country i'm assuming because, assuming because of the coal mines um, i'm assuming that too yeah yeah um but the culture and it's generally in the uk for every region got their own accents and sometimes you can go down the streets and there's a different accent between between different areas it's a very dominant culture and i love that culture but landing into that culture was very different you know the dialect is different the words are different um and i kind of wanted to move to the uk and and you know maybe at the first day it was very hard and and the metallica song was in my head all the time because i need to focus i need to understand what they're saying i need to be good at my job and i need to because this is a good move for me and i need to just focus on it and and it it worked um excellent why, so why did you want to move to the UK? I asked you why you wanted to be in Coventry, but is it a different reason for coming to the yeah, UK? Yeah, a different reason. So um, I moved to the UK. I didn't really want to. It's not like I didn't, I didn't want to. It just happened. Um, I worked for, for, for a company that gives IT services. I was a system administrator. And one of our customers was, um, was a company with head office in, the, in Israel, but they had a branch also oh. in, in the UK. They had problems with the servers, some issues with computers. I was sent over to fix it, and the company just said, do you want to stay? And I said, oh, well, that sounds great. I was 23, um, and there was you no know, the whole life in front of me. I had no you know, connections, you know, one of family, apart from my own family, obviously, but no kids or anything like that. And I just moved and said, Let, let's have a go. And 16 years later, I'm, I'm, I'm here. Um, so there was no specific. Who would have movement. thought that uh, Coventry would be like Hotel California? But it <laughs> yeah. turns out that it is. Yeah. Um, and then the third, the, so third the third song. One. Yeah, the yeah. third song, um, a bit similar to the first one. Um, I'm uh, I'm Jewish in my culture. Um, I'm not practicing Jew, but I'm Jewish in my culture. And there is, you know, if you are from Israel, there's a lot of holidays. Uh, every holidays involve a lot of food and a lot, lot a lot of family time. So the song is called Echad Mi Yodea, and it's a, um, it's a Passover song. Um, and Passover is a time that you sit with your family, and it's, uh, it's almost a, as ritual as Christmas for the Christians. It's the biggest you know, holiday, and you sit and you eat lots of food again. Um, and it's one of the final songs of the evening. And you know, traditionally, it's where the kids normally fall asleep. But the song is, is, is asking a lot of questions, and again, it's... Same as the first song from Nirvana. It reminds me of my family and sitting together around that table and singing that song together and being merry and happy, half drunk or more drunk, and, uh, and, um, and just enjoying time together. Now, I, that song reminds me of that time. Of course, I moved to the UK. My whole family is still in Israel, so I miss them a lot. And yeah, that song reminds me that oh, that time was feeling. That's awesome. Will you send us a, a, a pointer to that on YouTube? I'm assuming there's a there's a yeah, oh, version course. on YouTube yeah, that we can list. Yeah. We'll include it in the speaker notes. Nice so. one. Very good, Matan. I have really enjoyed this. I've learned a lot. Uh, you've been incredibly eloquent and helpful. Uh, so thanks, thanks so much for for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. It's been it's been a pleasure. So that was our podcast. If you have been. Thank you for listening. Uh, I really enjoyed this one because uh, for me, it was 
just a learning opportunity. Tremendous amount of information, uh, technical, business, and I think a bit of a crystal ball into the future. This is uh, an area that's really just starting uh, to expand rapidly. Um, so I hope uh, hope you uh, agree. Um, and uh, once again, appreciate your loyalty and staying to the end. Uh, and as a loyal uh, listener, uh, then please do uh, rate us uh, and recommend us. Um, and most importantly, come back next time. Thanks a lot. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out for a chance to win the French Open title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV, live in HD. Don't miss a moment with daily live coverage and match replays on demand, beginning Monday, May 20th. Be there for all the unforgettable moments. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.